Hello, I'm Chris Biddle and welcome to episode 88 of Inside AgriTurf. And this episode is sponsored by BAGMA, the British Agricultural and Garden Machinery Association, who has been providing support, guidance and advice to UK independent dealers for over 100 years. And for this first episode of the 2023 season, we head down under to New Zealand, where I'm catching up with St. John Craner, except that it's pronounced Sinjin, a Brit originally who now runs a successful sales training company for agribusiness clients across New Zealand, Australia and the US. Sinjin is also the host of the Rural Sales Show podcast, produced out of his offices near Napier, on the east coast of the North Island. And at the end of the podcast, I'll give you details on how to obtain a free copy of his book, How to Succeed in Rural Sales. So, Sinjin, welcome. And and, and first, tell me something about your early life in the UK. Hey, well, great to be here, Chris. As you can tell by the accent, although I'm New Zealand-based, I'm English by birth, and I was born on a farm in Essex, Went to school up in Newport, um, just up the road, and yeah, kind of been surrounded by farming and rural and sort of agribusiness my whole life, and and kind of looped back into that, which we'll get into. Uh, and and you got, took some education over here. You went to university, I believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fought through people, uh, not physically, uh, to Bournemouth University. I think my criteria was uh, sandy beaches and sunshine hours. That was a major, major, uh, major, major attribute for me uh, of weighted criteria. But no, honestly, um, they had a very good uh, degree course of its kind. I think it was the only one of its kind at the time, and I had to beat about fifty people to my one place. I might add that I was actually late for my interview, uh, and and they asked who I was, and I introduced myself as I'm late, which uh, <laughs> sounded like a dad joke, but they actually quite liked that. But somehow, God forbid, I managed to get in there, and that was a. Um, advertising marketing media degree course and it was the only one of its kind so the uk government at the time was really trying to get red brick universities up and get more vocational degrees and it was pretty competitive and had amazing time down there amazing lecturers who used us as guinea pigs for all their dark coke ads um i don't go up and down elevators washing windows or anything like that chris um that was more <laughs> around uh yeah then testing out all the ad creators so we had some like real life ad agency folk who were teaching us really really good stuff so I really enjoyed my time there and played a bit of rugby round Sirencester Cheltenham Dorset and Wiltshire League and yeah yeah it was a good good spot good time uh, and um you you worked with some agencies did you in in England yeah we yeah, worked for McCann Erickson and went through sort of IPA clearinghouse so because because at the time it was the only degree course of its kind they kind of handpicked and cherried and did a bit of a milk round on graduates, so managed to get into um, McCann Erickson, which is a pretty pretty big agency shop, and then um, yeah moved on to Young and Rubicon here in uh, Australia, and New Zealand. So yeah, we'll we'll get into that. So so how did you end up in in New Zealand, or how have you ended up in? New yeah, Zealand? I met my uh, ex wife in Australia and moved over to New Zealand, and got fantastic Kiwi kids here, and I liked New Zealand because. It's very rurally focused, so it's quite agrarian as its economy, thus thus my company name. And they love their rugby, and they're pretty good at it, although I have to say I do support England, and I was vastly unpopular, uh, unpopular when England absolutely belted the All Blacks in 2019. I just had to sort of like hide because um, it was very unexpected, but I was very modest. 
uh, about that. Uh, and they're very good. They're very, uh, very good losers, the All Blacks. So say humble losers, unlike maybe the English sometimes. And yeah, New Zealand's got great outdoors. So yeah, a lot of rural, a lot of rugby, a lot of beer kind of things that I'm into and kind of really, really fits. And I think the biggest thing about New Zealand without boring your listeners is um, the space. Because I think the land mass is about the same as the UK, but our population is only about 5 million and about one and a half, almost 2 million of those lovely individuals live in Auckland anyway. So there's quite a lot of Poms or English over here, um, South Africans, um, not so many Americans, but yeah, you still hear a lot of English voices and accents in New Zealand. There's, there's quite a few of us over here now. So you've got this this company, Agrarian. Uh, mm. Agrarian, yes. Uh, yeah, I agrarian. think I said to you earlier on, I used to play for the Dorset Agrarians cricket team, which uh, yeah. I wouldn't have known the connection then. But um, so presumably growing up on a farm, why why did you decide to focus on the agribusiness? Did you did you see that as a, a as a sector which was ripe for improvement in terms of the, the way it operated, its business methods and so on? Yeah, look, um, the re- it was really kind of fortuitous, really. I mean, I'd always grown up in a rural farming community. I was almost called, I was always called cruelly bullied at school. Not, not really bullied, but like had the Mickey taken out. And I was called Farmer Craner, even though we weren't like full, full on farmers. Because my dad worked for an agricultural merchant company, which was kind of Dalgetty of its time, and so he had the farm, and he was a agricultural consultant as well or agricultural merchant i should say so he's selling seed feed grain chemicals and annoying mum on sunday nights with the phones going constantly and plates getting thrown at him because uh farmers kept coming up the driveway anyway i digress but the reason i got back into the agribusiness sector or the rural sector is it's kind of where i come from and i had done my Big ad agency gigs like McCann Erickson, Young and Rubicons, some big, worked on some big chunky accounts. And then I worked in the corporate world and cut my teeth as a marketing manager at some big energy companies, utility companies and banks in Australia and New Zealand and kind of looped back round into rural because it's kind of like back to your rural roots, I suppose. And uh I suppose it just felt it's felt natural really. And I was working for an agency that was specializing as a marketing agency in rural and learn a ton there. And then I did my Lincoln uh Kellogg leadership program, uh, which is a kind of invite only kind of thing. Again, a bit of a bar to get into, but I'm always up for that and up for the competition. Completed that kind of mini master's program in Lincoln and Christchurch in Canterbury and and realized that I actually wasn't learning anything. And they always say, I can't remember someone far, far more intelligent than me, which wouldn't be hard to find. And they say a principal is only a principal when it costs you money. So I was on a very, very high wicket. I obviously was good at what I did. I uh, won some significant business for them. And we kind of transformed from a regional kind of backwater marketing agency into one of Australasia's largest or most respected um, rural marketing companies. And to sort of loop that all together, I was kind of their business development guy and their strategic planning guy. And um, people said, Sinjin, you're actually really good at business development. Like you can do strategy and I still do a lot of farming panels. We facilitate farming panels to understand how they buy for different clients. And we do farmer interviews and phone interviews and stuff. So still do a lot of market research insight work. But people said, hey, you know, you're good at your marketing side, but actually we think you're better. We think your super skill is in selling. Or in business development and at the time 
like a lot of listeners, as soon as you mention the word sales, everyone goes, you know, like slippery, sleazy, fast hand rubbing salesman and all the connotations that come with it. And so that's why we give, um, excuse my language here, Chris, wanky words like business development director and things like that. So we don't like to use the word sales in case we scare off our, our customers. So we'll unpack that more. I know we will, but that's kind of how I got into it. So I feel very at home talking to rural folk. I live in a rural part of New Zealand. I live in Hawke's Bay here on the east coast of the North Island. Uh, and as we said before, we're getting on, we're just being bucketed with rain and it's supposed to be summer here. So any of your listeners in the UK, don't feel too sorry for us. We're not having a balmy summer. It's pretty, pretty bloody gumboot wet weather. Great for ducks. But yeah, that's how I got into it, really. Uh, so sorry, very long answer to a very good question. No, that's all right. But um, I think in selling, is selling to farmers or the farming community or agribusiness in general, is that different to um, selling into other business or consumer sectors? And, and, and how is it different? Yeah, my answer would be, and maybe I'm biased because of that sense of belonging and knowing that sector, I think they are. I, why I say that, to give you some rationale, is farmers make a conscientious decision to be their own boss. So that means they're wired in a different way, which means they like to be in control and they don't like to be told what to do. You see this with the protests, whether it's set aside or EU or here with dairy farming and environmental regulation or carbon forestry and farming, all the things they they resist and react badly to people trying to control their livelihoods, and understandably so, because they consciously chose to farm, in almost all cases, to be their own boss. And because they're their own boss, they score very highly on the attributes of agency and autonomy. So they are autonomous by nature, and they like to do and control what they can control. Because as you know, Chris, because you, you come from that community too, is farmers there's so little that they can control. So if you're selling to a farmer and you're trying to control the sale and using these bullshit high-pressure selling tactics, you're going to get kicked out the gate. You're not even going to get a, a, a look in. So you really need to understand that farmers have a very high bullshit uh, antenna and detector they are incredibly cynical and skeptical of anyone that doesn't take the time to understand them or demonstrate that they understand their nuances and their lives and their challenges and their pressures, their hopes, their dreams, their fears. So you really kind of, to be in the market, to know the market, you need to be in the market. So you can't kind of rock up and say, oh, I can sell to farmers because uh, it's just the same as selling to um, consumers or FMCG or retailers because it's not. They're wired differently. They will think incredibly long sometimes about what they're going to say. They don't generally waste their words, men and women, I might say. And they are deeply cynical and skeptical of people because they are self-governing and autonomous. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, yes, it, yes, it does. I mean, they've obviously got a, um, a very keen bullshit radar and, um, uh, you know, they don't like somebody calling up in a, in a, in a nice shiny car with, uh, inappropriate footwear and goodness knows what, um, you mentioned just now, um, your involvement in, in, um, uh, sales and in marketing. 
Now, a lot of my listeners, I mean, they will some will be corporates, but a lot of them will be small family businesses where sales and marketing kind of roll into one. But um, I think you've got a view on that, haven't you, that, that they should be connected in, in quite a close way. You've been doing your homework, Mr. Biddle. It's very good. Um, yeah, so I am a little bit contrarian in my view. So I'm not everyone's always going to agree. So I don't always agree with the conventional. So I'll spell it out and, and hopefully give you some rationale rather than a rant. I believe uh, that almost as a reformed marketer, let's say, and now a sales trainer and coach in rural, that marketing is a function of sales. Now, anyone that's in marketing, particularly marketing managers, maybe in medium to blood, is, is probably going to spit out their tea or whatever they're drinking right now when I say that. And I say that respectfully because basically marketing's job is to generate qualified leads to a sales team to close them. Now, if a marketing team is really good at what they do, as Peter Drucker says, marketing should make sales superfluous. So you shouldn't even need a sales team because you know your idle customer so intimately and so well and can articulate their problems and pain so well that they know that you have the solution. So you don't have to then close the customer. You don't have to sell to them. So for me, the problem that I see, and I see a lot of patterns because I've got the, the privilege of working with lots of different companies, the patterns I see is a sales team go, oh, marketing, they're just the coloring in department and the making things pretty department, and they're really good at spending all the bloody money, and while we're really good at earning all the money. So we're the profit center, and you're the cost center, so you need to listen to us. And this is why marketing suffers from such, most marketing suffers from that sort of dark arts label, and it's the first thing that gets crossed out as times get tough. But ultimately, I've never had a client turn off their marketing when it's working. You've often described, or I think you describe, I mean, let's just go back to um, the terminology we use in uh, in the dealership. Um, and, and you've got the service department, which is obviously a service and a, for technical issues. You've got the parts department, which is a service. And then we call the salesman, salesman. And I'm just wondering whether they should be called salesmen or, or women. And indeed, the very use of the word dealer also throws up through interesting connotations, connotations um, indeed, of, indeed. Of, of being a dealer and a wheeler yeah. dealer. Wheeler dealer, um, yeah. And and should um Sinjin, do you think that that that, that selling should be regarded uh, as a service on the line with the way that you market service with the technical department and the support department and the parts department. Uh, and, and in fact, it should not be seen as an out and out uh, sales function, but one of, of us, of a service to the customer. Oh, totally. Totally. Um, I think again, Peter Drucker to quote him because he's one of my kind of gurus and uh, I'll talk about who Im influences me most in a minute, but he says there's only really two functions of a business is to innovate and to make and create a customer. Now, I think sales has got a lot wrong. We all have this horrible um, reaction, allergic reaction when we say sales or salesperson. The antidote to that, so I'm going to say this really clearly for your listeners, the antidote to that is to be of service. So to answer your question, the phrase I coined, and I don't know if I can patent it, but maybe I'll do some T-shirts of it soon. I'm not sure. I'm being facetious. Is that you must serve before you sell. 
Now, if you're in, so the way I define that and the way we train our teams is if you serve the best interests of your customer rather than serving the best interests of yourself as a rural rep or a salesperson, you will always make more sales. So I'm going to say it one more time because it's very important for your listeners to understand the definition. Serve to sell means that you serve the best interests of your customer before serving the best interest of yourself. And this is why so many rural reps fail to make quota. I think the statistic is about 47% of sales teams fail to make their quota. It's a really big number because they're self-interested. They are interested in serving their own needs rather than the needs of their customers. When you serve the needs of your client, your farming client, the skeptical, cynical, high bullshit radar farmer that we've talked about, you've got to make them feel safe. You have to signal bar safety. This is another really important point because you can only do that when they say, this guy, Chris, he's got my back. He's He actually cares about me and he's listened to me and he's understood my specific problem. And he goes above and beyond and offers me greater solutions. I'm going to stick this guy, even though he might be worth a bit more. And we all have those people in life where they're tradesmen. I reckon I've got the most expensive electrician in Hawke's Bay here. But the guy texts me and tells me when he's going in, when he's going out, when he's going to come back. It's unheard of. So that level of that whole concept of service that you talk about is incredibly important. So we serve to sell, and that's how we sell more. Does that that make sense? Yeah, it it does. And and that suggests that you need to to do some homework on your customers as well and and, kind of know – what they're looking for because every customer is different every customer's got different needs and indeed every customer's got a different approach to uh, you as an individual or your company um, so how yeah. important is that then sinjin to, yeah. to to really un- unearth uh, what makes these guys tick or what they want yeah so i i get many good pieces of advice because because i'm a coach and a trainer i have to be trained myself so i'm always investing in myself and I'm not, I don't say that to be egotistical, but I realize, you know, it's COVID, you've got to sharpen your own source. So you kind of keep a moat between you and your competition. You've got to be continually upskilling. The most important advice I was given regards to what you're saying there is specificity spits cash. Specificity spits cash. And the, let me break that down again. What it means is if I don't specifically understand the problems that you are experiencing, Chris, you are less likely to think that I've got the solution for you. And and the way to do that is to obviously ask really good questions and be curious, be genuine and sincere in your tent and your line of questioning. Not do you want to buy this tractor from me or this raker or this mower or this tedder, but why is this important to you now? What problem are you trying to solve here, Chris? Do you mind me asking how long has this been going on for? What kind of systems or methods have you used to try and fix this before. How did that go? So you can see immediately that sort of curiosity in my line of questioning, and I haven't got time to unpack it all more, but it's it's making sure that you unearth or surface the real reasons and problems that your client, your farming client is facing or your turf seed client is facing, and then you're going to have a genuine conversation. Um, and, and, and then you're going to get into the specificity because generalities don't, cut it so specificity spits cash is uh is are we talking about specialism here um no we'll get on to that what we mean by 
specificity is that you have a problem that is unique that you believe to yourself. The problem most rural reps make is they go, oh, I've already seen this problem. I've seen this problem before. And, and they show up in front of it and they do a verbal vomit and they just barrel the client. And of course, the farmer's sort of backtracking and barreling back because the, the, the ego of the rural rep, and this is where the psychology kicks in, the ego of the rural rep. I was training a bunch of bankers here in New Zealand and they're all ex-bankers and, and they, their ego, their technical ego couldn't stop them from blurting out the problem. The problem is when you go to a doctor, the doctor generally, if they're a good one, he or she does not interrupt you, although they do. And we'll talk about specialism in a minute and generalists because I think that's where we're going. But they listen. And listening, you know, Kel Surprise, is very, very important. So you need to actively and empathetically listen and then shut up when you've asked really good questions. Because the thing is, you, in order to get really good answers and understand the specificity, the uniqueness of that problem, that is unique to that individual. They are struggling with it. They are living with it 24-7 in their own head. It might be ruminating. They might be losing sleep on it, whatever it happens to be. Or they, it's paining them because every big purchase is a psychological pain, and we can get into that. But what they're doing is they're going, I don't want to make a mistake here. And so if you can specifically understand their problem, then you're more likely to be able to specifically solve their problem. And this is why we say in the training, specificity spits cash. It's a very ugly, vulgar phrase I'm using, but you get the sentiment is that the more specific you are, the more likely you are to solve their problems and make the sale. And I did just mention the word specialism uh, just now. Um, how important is is that? I mean, can can a sales team be jack of all trades, or or do they need to um, be be divided up, if if you like, to serve certain certain customers? Yeah. So, like I always say, sorry, I use sporting metaphors all the time, and your your listeners will be up for this. Never play players out of position. So on a rugby field, you do not put a fullback in the front row. There will be some people, and 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 then the whole cliches of farmers versus hunters, right? Oh, well, they're all forwards these days. They're all backs these days. <laughs> and mirrors, pretty mirrors. I was I was a halfback, so I was kind of a hybrid. Yeah. Um, and the smallest guy on the pitch, uh, and 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 a, a yappy mouth, but um, which you would listen, I'm sure, already worked out. But um, what what I would say is, it is very important that you have a uh, the whole it's a big question because the, the way I could answer it is say you need to be a trusted advisor and everyone is that that's and, and excuse the pun it's hallowed turf right to be the trusted advisor you'll know when you're the trusted advisor and you've elevated beyond a salesperson or sort of when your farmer phones you for advice the best thing they do is ask you for your advice and your opinion that's when you know your trusted advisor that is a hard earned privileged position an entitled position that you must never take for granted to be around that kitchen table it's a sacred place a sacred spot in order to do that it's back to our only thing you have to serve their best interests rather than your own to generate that trust because trust is huge in rural because a lot of things are done on a handshake on character on behavior rather than your title of your job or what you're called you're judged on what you do your character is very very important so what I would say is around the specialism is cardiologists, sorry, more metaphors, cardiologists beat GPs. I've always preferred to be a cardiologist and I don't like skinny kids. So I like to feed my children. So being a specialist is much more useful than being a generalist. 
because a specialist means that they know that you've got an air of expertise and you've got to pre-position yourself and your authority and doing things like this to prove your authority to say, I know this particular area. So when you have a real problem, you have a cardiac or myocardial infarction, like a like a heart attack or aortic valve or ventricle or whatever else. This is my A-level biology kicking in. Um, you don't go to a GP. What does the GP do, Chris? Where do they refer you to? Well, <laughs> often uh, another GP, but... <laughs> they, they should refer you to a specialist. Yes. So basically that specialist says, so when you have a specific problem, Chris, do you want someone who's generalised or do you want someone who's specialised on that specific thing of fixing holes in hearts, just using an example? On this this subject of knowing your customer, I, I think all of us learn lessons as we, we go through life. And I, I learned some important lessons when I was uh, a, a rep on the road selling farm machinery. And down the Chalk Valley from Salisbury, there was a very eclectic uh, group of farmers. And one had just appointed a new uh, farm manager who asked me for a quote for a combine one day. Uh, he was a good customer, but I also know that other people were in for it. Mm. We quoted him as keenly as we could. I went back and said, how did we fare? And he said, no, I'm sorry, you just lost, lost out on that. And my answer was that, well, do you think um, we could sharpen our pencil? And I always remember him looking at me and saying, are you telling me, Mr. Biddle, that you did not give me your best quote? And and against that, that taught me a good lesson. But against that, a few doors down or a few farms down the line was 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 another guy, Joe. Um, whenever he wanted to buy anything, he sat me in his front room, plied me with whiskey until he um, got the deal that he wanted. And that was his way of, <laughs> of doing a deal. Now, I think we've come a long way from those days, mainly because of drink driving. But that mm. does feed back into knowing your customer, doesn't it, Sinjin? It does. And I mean, you've got to sell like a doctor. Now, I know I've just given GPs a bit of a bad rap. I've actually got two Welsh doctors as neighbours here in New Zealand. Um, so I hope he's not listening. But basically, it's, it's, it's almost about like a consultative selling. And there's much more. There's lots of schools of thoughts and lots of books around challenge-based selling. And uh, I, I obviously specialise in psychology-based selling. What you need to do is you need to understand specifically, understand the problem that that farmer's having. You do that by asking really, really good questions and you prep for that. You do not wing it and waste the deal by just rocking up and having a conversation because, you know, it's like the pilot. When you go jump on a plane, a good pilot is going to walk around, particularly our little planes here in New Zealand that are still prop planes because we don't have many jet planes because we're not that sophisticated. The pilot always walks around the plane and checks everything off. You should be no different as a sales professional. Instead of a sales rep that wings it, you should be a sales rep. You should be a sales professional that uses what we call a pre-call plan. It's like your flight checklist. And so the most trusted train, right? And this is why, you know, we want the surgeons and the specialists that have done, you know, thousands of surgeries, not um, Dave, who's only done five and he's still working on it. You know, this is, so I'm probably not asking your question, but to give you specifically, yeah, you've got to understand them, but the only way you understand them is asking really, really good questions and being curious and genuine in your tent. You have to be sincere because you'll be judged by the questions you ask. Everyone, they, everyone forgets this, Chris. Everyone gives themselves away by the questions they ask. Now, if they ask good questions, they get good answers. But if they ask stupid questions, they're going to get stupid answers. 
Did you know that as a member of BAGMA, you can access highly competitive finance facilities through the BAGMA Bank? It's a service we've been offering to members for over a quarter of a century. So whether it's a loan to help grow your business, finance new equipment or vehicles, or a savings plan to help your money flourish, we provide a service tailored exclusively for you and your industry. Find out more at bagmabank.com. In, in making a sale, it, we often look at, at adding value to that sale. And um, again, how important is it to sort of generate, sort of demonstrate some generosity? In other words, uh, that you've got something up your sleeve and, and, and maybe the farmer or your customer thinks they're getting, thinks you're being generous to him. Um, mm. is, is that a good tactic, Sinjin? I think uh, I think generosity as an overall strategy is a very good one. It's one I employ. It's one I endorse as well. We give away a lot. The most important thing you do this 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 forgive me, Chris, but this concept of adding value, I think sometimes is a little trite and a little bit overdone. And it's like that word vulnerability. You know, it's like a buzzword. Ah, oh, we must add value. What you do is you create value. You don't add value. You create the value because the value is unique because every farm and farm is different. So it's back to specificity. You do The first thing you've got to do before you even add value is you need to signal safety to that buyer because that buyer is psychologically, you think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, shelter and safety, those physiological needs are number one. They're not even going to engage or listen to you until they feel safe. The best way to make your farming clients feel safe for your listeners is to ask them really good questions. You should only be talking about 20% and then listening for about 80%. And that's the first thing you need to do. And then and only then you can ask for permission to add value once you've fully understood and defined their problem properly. You must define the problem properly. I think Einstein had that quote, you know, um, if I was going to solve a problem, the first thing I'd do is the first 55 minutes, I'd work out if it was the right question to ask so i bumbled it but i'm sure you've got the you've got the better one it is the impressions that you you give um only last week i went to the had to go to the dentist and had this hygienist treatment which is always digging around in your gums and making you feel <laughs> very uncomfortable but the following day i had a i had a text from my my dentist saying are you okay um mm. and i thought this is the first time this had happened Mm. And uh, of course, I went back and said, "Yeah, I'm okay. Thank you very much for asking." Um, but mm. how important is that in the in the sales process to to keep the communication going? Yeah. Now, your dentist, he's obviously been well trained because uh, I've I've actually got a number of business coaches in my group that do dentistry. I don't know if it would have been an automated text, and I don't want to take away from your uh, it. It probably is. Yes. Yeah. But the, and the nice thing is at least it didn't, when you text back, it didn't say do not reply. So the fact of the matter is, let's get to the answer. The most important moment of truth in the customer experience is the first follow-up. Now, particularly in the machinery game, because I've, I've, you know, Case and John Deere and lots of different companies, uh, Heinegger, the wool guys, wool press guys, I've run a lot of farming panels and they said, do you know the most important call is the first follow-up call, how's that machine going for you? I want to come out and see how it's getting on. And that is the moment, that is the, so like your follow-up, so I think the concept of following-up, it's very important you're disciplined on your follow-up. 
Now, sometimes using a marketing term, you have to nurture that relationship. You might not sell to them 80% of sales. So this is all the research that we we are privy to. 80% of sales are made in the 8th to 12th interaction. So as you know, with automation now, and this is where I sort of climb back into marketing, is you need to be nurturing that lead with high-value educational-based content that supports them to make an accurate and informed decision. So you're serving, 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 and then you get an opportunity to sell where they go, actually, Chris or Sinjin, I like what you're about. I like your intent. I like your character. I like the fact that you've earned the sale. You can come and talk to me around my kitchen table and talk to me about your seed, your feed, your chemical, your machinery, whatever it happens to be. Indeed. One thing I was wondering was you and New Zealand have gone through a, a fairly torrid time for, um, for for COVID. And I think all sales and marketing operations really had to rethink the way they, they got to farmers because the shows, your field days and so on were, were cancelled. Um, do you think um, what happened over the last year or so as a result of COVID has altered the way that, that sales and marketing teams operate? Yeah, great question, Chris, as always. Um, yeah, I fundamentally do. This is what was happening. No one goes to the gym until they have a heart attack. Sorry to keep using this heart attack metaphor. But it's not until they're actually um, forced to do something that they do something about it. A bit like farmers, right? So your list, your email list or your phone list that you can text or email with good information that serves their needs, not your own, because remember you're nurturing the sale, is your list is your lifeline. The best advice I could give to your clients and your listeners today is build your list. Your list is one of your most important business assets. I'm not talking about a database because that's your client database. A list is a list of prospects that you're nurturing. Maybe you're using automated email sequence and I can send you the resources to help you on that. But what it is, is you are constantly building a list by reciprocation because you're giving out really good information as a fair exchange and saying, I've got something that I think might help you make a really good and accurate informed decision. Maybe not now, maybe for next season. Here it is. I just need your email and your phone number. I have I work with breed societies here in Australia, New Zealand, ram breeders, beef, uh, Simmental, Angus. And I was challenged by them and said, we'll never, you'll never get farmers' emails and phone numbers, Sinjin. We tried. We tried for years. We got 230 emails and phone numbers in four weeks using a very specific piece of content that farmers wanted to use to wean heavier calves in Simmental, this was. And um, as a result, we proved them wrong because I love I love the challenge anyway. But what I'm saying there is you have to earn the sale. And today you are not going to sell – you don't get married on the first date. It's naive to think so. So you have to earn the right and you need to serve and serve and serve and serve and serve. And of course, sales cycles are getting much longer, right? And I think obviously the world is going to get very competitive. I would say I was having a conversation on email this morning with another potential client. I said, I don't think businesses are realizing how tight things are going to get. So if they don't have their sales and marketing systems dialed in and they're not building those lists and nurturing those lists and communicating or worse, leaving a communications vacuum because you know the law of physics, vacuums get filled in by other content and other conversations, not yours. So then you lose control of that conversation is if you do that, if you don't do that and you're not constantly nurturing and talking to your clients, 
serving their needs, not your own. So serving, not selling. You could be in for a bit of a bit of a hard time in this year and next year. We know how the UK is going. I was over there six months ago seeing dear old mum in Essex on the farm. And it's no different here in Australia, New Zealand. I was talking to a ram breeder yesterday, very big ram breeder in Australia. You know, the schedule price is dropping, the cattle price is dropping. We've had three phenomenal years down here of commodity prices, but don't get lazy. Don't get complacent. You know, you have to continually go to the gym, so to speak. So you need to constantly be marketing. Your marketing machine needs to be on 365 days of the year. Yes, recognize that your content plan, your marketing calendar reflects different biological things that are going on the farm at different times when they're making hay or silage or they're feeding out the tupping, culling, mating, whatever it happens to be. What I'm saying a long way is never, ever underinvest in effective marketing. And effective marketing that supports the sales process is generating qualified leads. So you need emails, you need phone numbers, you might be able to get size of farm, farm type if you're clever, and we we do that. Your list is your lifeline. So sorry, long answer to a very good question. In COVID, in epidemics, in recessions, regardless, and I've been coached by some, I reckon some of the best in the world, and it's cost me a fortune, but it's been worth it as a Sinjin, your list is your lifeline. Build your list and do not neglect it. Continually build it every single day. I don't think anybody would disagree that 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 life is is tough and trading is tough and business is tough and and, and possibly going to get tougher. Uh, we're we're living in a, a strange time because um, just to repeat what uh, uh, David Withers, who's the president of the AEA Agricultural Engineers Association, and he's a boss of Izeki UK, uh, was saying in a previous podcast, is that um, in the last few months, like year or so, dealers have been sort of order takers and allocators of of machinery and equipment because of the supply situation. Yeah. Now that yeah. means that they get scared, and instead of saying, "Well, look, we'll order four, but we only got two last year, so we ought to order six, and then the six come through this year," um, there is a danger of overstocking. So, I mean, if that happens, then they're going to have the work cut out um, to, to to move that in into into profitable sales. Yeah, hundred percent. So I was talking to the. Uh, Tractor and Machinery Association, and I was at the conference, and they kindly brought me on as keynote. And I talked about the fact is that actually the going has been really good. Actually, it's been really easy. In fact, the machines have almost sold themselves because what we do is we use the law of loss aversion. I say, Chris, you know you want that six series um, John Deere. Well, we don't know if we're going to get it. So if you want to get your order, you need to get it on now because I can't get it on the ship. So all the power was with the dealer. The problem now, the power, if they do have that oversupply and the over-inventory now that the factories are starting to pump things out again and shipping starting to come down in some sort of way, is you're going to be left with a lot of inventory. The issue is if you were manipulating that, and again, you weren't sincere in your intent and genuine, and you were serving your own interests rather than theirs, you will be found out. Because in life, it's not what you do now, it's what you've done. So again, if you've got health problems or let's talk about sales, you've got pipeline problems. It's because of the work you didn't do three or six months before. And this is why people only go to the gym when they have a heart attack. Yeah. So this extremism, it is you must control the controllable, like all good farmers. In the in the various groups that you've spoken to about selling and sales techniques and so on, are there any 
examples that you've been pleased to note um, as a result of, of some of the advice that you've given amongst any of the groups? Uh, something that you say, yeah, you know, um, I, I advised them to do this or I suggested that they did this and it's really worked. Yeah. Um, I could go on for hours and we don't and we can point people to more resources where they can get hold of this stuff for free is I have a very deep sympathy for rural salespeople. It's a lonely job. There's a lot of no's, a lot of rejection. It's really hard on the ego to be rejected continually because biologically we don't like to be rejected from the cave, so to speak. So my, my, some of the best tools that I provide is that is, is a lot of what we've just spoken about. The first thing is you must be curious rather than critical. I think that's one of the best pieces of advice uh, I was given. You must be curious, and curious people ask really good questions. Now, Chris, you're a very curious person. You're a very learned person. Your questions are excellent. You've really thought about them. You've done your research on me. So I'm really enjoying this conversation. The second best piece of advice I, I would uh, give to your listeners is sales are made in the conversation, not the presentation. I uh, train agri-tech companies and they SaaS companies in Australia, New Zealand here and in the States in California. And I get them on and I train them and they go, ah, oh, we're just, we're doing our demos. We're doing our demonstrations. I'm not talking about farm machinery here. I'm talking about, you know, um, uh, software demos. And they're just, they're not, they're not buying. I said, leave the presentation, the PowerPoint in the computer, put the computer in the bag, leave the computer on the floor and have a conversation. Now, the best conversations are fueled by quality questions. So my third piece of advice here is the question is the answer. So curiosity versus criticism. Don't go, why is that, why did that bug up goes in? Why is he not phoning me back? get curious. What did I do? What did I do? Did I do my homework? Did I do my due diligence? Did I work out? Did I speak to absolutely everyone that knows that farmer or other farmers that know that farmer and find out as much as I can so I could be planned and prepared to have a conversation? Secondly, am I asking really, really good questions? Am I planning and preparing for that? And thirdly, is my sales conversation good? We're having a good conversation here because you've asked really good questions. It's no different in sales. Sales are made in the conversation not in the presentation, which then means if you ask the right questions in the right way, and we teach a lot on that, is here's the magic. Customers will close themselves. Mm, yeah. Because I might say to you, Chris, Chris, this sounds fine. Could you just tell me why are you looking at this now? Now, me asking that question to you is – you, I'm asking you to give me your buying motives, your desires. Now, I want to know if this is a priority. Is this a now thing or a later thing? Me asking that question in a nice way, do you mind me asking, which is what we call a sentence starter, to soften that line of questioning. Chris, do you mind me asking why are you, why are you potentially looking at this now? Why is this important to you now? Why are you only looking at this now? You're more likely to say, well, Sinjin, the reason I'm looking at it now is because it's – and then I've got intel and then I can follow a line of questioning. Um, again for your particularly for your uk listeners and i'm showing my age here michael parkinson with the exception of meg ryan was a master at putting his guests making his customers feel at ease sorry freudian slip his guests at ease and feeling safe and feeling comfortable as a result he had better conversations and he got all the intel all the scoops all the stories all the all the goss and people go how the hell did you get that out of them because he made them feel safe and because he asked really good questions. And like you as a journalist, 
And we can learn a lot from chat show hosts and from journalists. So the Larry Kings, the Oprahs, the Michael Parkinson's, uh, Kim Hill here in New Zealand, and, and, and lots of good journos, is if you plan and prepare and ask the right questions, you'll get the right answers. So the question is the answer. If there's one one piece of advice I could give your listeners overall, is ask really good, get really good at asking really good questions. Yeah, and yeah. if you do that, if you plan and prepare, you will profit and you will perform, and we call it the four Ps. So I hope that helps. <laughs> well, look, um, I'm, I'm really enjoying this, and we're uh, w- the time is short, unfortunately. Um, there's a plethora of, of, of sales books, advice, videos, trainers, and, and so on out there. Over your time, Sinjin, um, is there a piece of advice that you've been given you, that you turned out to be, I won't say rubbish, but but but, but just no use at all? And um, against that, what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? You're such a geek, Chris, using your language. I will say the biggest piece of bollocks advice <laughs> I've ever been, bollocksy piece of advice I've ever been given is fake it till you make it. Now, I was asked this on another podcast recently in, in the US, and he said, what's the worst advice you've been given? I said, fake it till you make it. The problem with faking it till you make it is it's a very bruising encounter if you don't have the competencies and capabilities to build up that confidence because it's a false confidence and you will be found out very, very quickly, particularly by our cynical and skeptical Mr. and Mrs. Farmer. So the antidote to fake it till you make it is basically confidence comes from competence. I'm not saying people are incompetent. Some people are unconsciously incompetent, of course, and there's no hope for them, like the bottom third of your sales team, just just saying, uh, because you'll never be able to fix them. Do not focus on the squeakiest wheel. But if people are consciously incompetent and are self-aware and have the emotional intelligence to understand that they need to be more competent, the more competencies they have, the more confidence they will have. So the reason why I can talk like this is because I've done this for years and years and years and years because I've got some competencies and capabilities that I've skilled and drilled over the years. Um, So confidence comes from competence versus fake it till you make it. The other piece of advice I would give, particularly to maybe more of a, I don't know if this is more of a male audience and listenership, my late father. It didn't ought to be, mind you. No, exactly. We we need more diversity. Absolutely. Uh, Men and women, but particularly men are not very good at this. My late father, uh, Mike, he uh, had many faults, but he also had some very good uh, piece of advice. And he actually passed away on the farm in Essex from a brain tumour because of NHS being in such a state over COVID. And I couldn't get back there because of managed isolation. But one of the piece of advice he gave me uh, before uh, he was gone and, and we kind of reviewed this and managed to have lots of chats with him, which is great. He said, never forget, Sinjin, that exercise is for energy. So basically, people have always said, Sinjin, you've got a lot of energy because obviously I'm passionate about what I do. So I like doing what I do and I don't do what I don't like to do. Same for people and same for clients. Uh, for your, Particularly for your male listeners, from that mental health point of view that we talked about before we came on air, here's the thing. A lot of life is about contradiction. Now, things that don't make sense, things that are contrarian or contradictory is actually the key to success. So here's here's an example. The problem with sales is selling. The less you sell and the more you serve, the more you will sell. So, you know, the faster you go, the slower you will go. You know, we know that with traffic jams and trying to jump onto B-roads off the M25. Being a pommy, I remember all these things. But back to dad, 
He said, exercise for energy. And I remember that as a bit of a family motto, and I've always followed that. And why it's important is sometimes if you're on the mower or you're on the farm, and a lot of things obviously mechanized and motorized now or automated, so we're quite sedentary, right? I'm 48 now, 49 very soon, and metabolism is not my friend, and I still like uh, scotch fillet and and nice pinot and nice uh, craft beer, so it's not my friend. I got to move now. Sometimes when I am most tired and lacking energy is the time I don't want to go and swim or gym, but I make myself, and I'm very very grateful because obviously all the pheromones and the the runners high and the dopamine and everything else all kicks in, releases your cortisol, releases your adrenaline state, all the things that males are pretty bad at. So without gobbling up too much time, I would say make time. To exercise, even if it's just walking the dog and going to listen to a podcast like this, I would also say stop listening to the news. <laughs> yes, please stop listening because yes. the news has a negativity bias. The UK is terrible; they're not much better down here. It will make you miserable. Don't listen to the news. Control your own media consumption. Listen to bloody good podcasts like this. People who are curious, people who are positive, people who are open-minded. You'll learn a lot more. Your, your mental space will be better. So exercise for energy. Maybe it's just walking out in nature. Nature is a great restorer. Sure, um, sure. Maybe it's just going for a swim at the local pool, getting on your bike, uh, going for a little run, um, going to the gym, joining the squash club, all the socials, all the tennis club, all the bowls club. Get out there. When you feel your most miserable and your lowest ebb of energy, maybe because you've watched the news, Get out and exercise. Move. Doesn't matter what age you are, what mobility you are. Move. We are made to move. So that would be my best advice. Well, well, that's certainly not listening to news is very good advice just at the moment. Sinjin, you know, apart from your late dad, um, who's your who's your role model? Who, who do you most admire? Who do you quote most? Yeah, good. Um, I've obviously quoted Peter Drucker quite a bit. There's a really good dude. He's passed away. He was his name was Clayton Christensen. So Christensen is spelt like the Swiss way, I think it is. And he was a Harvard professor, and he actually came up with the concept of disruption. And everyone's like, you know, I'm a disruptor. He was the dude. He came up with this in 1970. He has a beautiful lecture, which is worth sitting down and watching a, a with a glass of red in hand. Uh, called the Sade Oxford University Lecture, and he talks about disruptive innovation. It's a fantastic lecture about how small, uh, undetected companies disrupt bigger companies. And he talks about the steel industry, um, printing, uh, car manufacturers. So the China, to give you an idea, the Chinese are disrupting the Koreans, the Koreans disrupted the Japanese, and the Japanese disrupted the Americans and the British. So fascinating so clayton christensen this is like desert island disc say chris like so <laughs> yeah, i would have i'll try and I find have, and put a link in the in the show notes i that. will I, I, or yeah. i'll send it to you clayton christensen and there's another amazing fascinating guy he's one of yours he's a countryman called rory sutherland and oh, he's the yes yeah and he's fascinating yes. he is effervescent he's fantastic he's so so interesting to learn and he's loves social science and psychology like me so i would have him around the table and i'll probably have benjamin franklin as well actually mm. um because warren buffett's two ic because every leader has a very good second in command which is often not acknowledged in this society is a guy called charlie munger and it's the and it's the um 
the Alamac of poor Charlie Munger or the the it's Charlie Munger's Alamac and it's actually modeled off Benjamin Franklin's Alamac and his 14 ways for living life so those are the kind of dudes sorry there's not many women I mean I you know I probably no, we're, like we're throwing Meg Ryan for good measure well I'm not <laughs> sure about Meg Ryan I much prefer Kate Winslet or, oh, or right. Rachel Wise um, for for some um, much needed female company so yeah. Um, yeah I would stop there but yeah those are the, those are the people I uh, and, kind and, of modern most and lastly I mean you've quoted some very quotable quotes. Um, is there one favourite motto that you've got hanging on the back of your loo door that uh, you uh, sets you off in the morning on your 5K well, run? It was a very touching thing. My my 17-year-old son for Christmas gave me a very nicely framed picture of Rudyard Kipling's quote, If, which I thought I was actually very touched, almost moved actually, because it's very thoughtful of him. But I would say... I'm going to answer it with a couple because, you know, I'm a greedy bugger. So what I would say is, I like this one. He's from Ge- his General Eric Shazinski, who was a U.S. Army general, very high, kind of like a Schwarzkopf um, guy, said, if you don't like change, you'll like irrelevancy even less. Hmm. Now, the now the Sinjin, I, 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 they're called affectionately, or I think people are just taking the piss, they're called Sinjinism. So my Sinjinism for your listeners would be, if you don't take action, you will be acted upon. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, on that note, um, we, we've covered a lot of ground. Sinjin, I'm sure my listeners will maybe want to want to hook up. And uh, I know you've got uh, some resources that you uh, are able to provide them with, which I will put the notes in, in the show notes of, of this episode. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, it's fine. Um, look, if people do want, if people like what I'm saying and haven't already tuned out, um, they can connect <laughs> with me on they can connect with me on LinkedIn. It's Sinjin, which is spelled Saint John S T J O H N Craner C R A N for Nanny E R. There's only one Sinjin Craner, and that is not a football chant. Uh, so look me up on LinkedIn. Chris will give you the link to my LinkedIn profile. I'm always pretty quick. Obviously, sometimes I'm sleeping because you guys are awake when I'm asleep, but I always, almost, always, always, always get back to anyone that reaches out, and I'm happy to send them cheat sheets or book recommendations or podcasts or link to my own podcast. The best thing I can probably do for people that want to find out more is send them to my um, free resources page. So for your listeners, um, they can probably download my ebook, which is called How to Succeed in Rural Sales. And the secrets and psychology every rural rep needs to know. I think this would be quite useful for them. It's usually I usually charge about twenty bucks on Amazon. Uh, doesn't matter. The ebook doesn't cost me anything. They can just go in there. Chris will put it in the uh, show notes. In there, grab a free copy of the ebook. I'd be delighted if people did that. And there's a link to my podcast. You can join my weekly email if you want. You can look at the the blogs, the articles. It's all there. So just help yourself. I'm a big believer in you give before you get. So, uh, sure. no, please help yourself. Well, look, Sinja, many thanks indeed. I, I, I really, really have enjoyed this, this catch-up with you. And uh, uh, I think sort of business across the world has always got so many similarities. Um, but it, it's coloured by regional differences. And that, that makes it interesting. So, could I thank you very much indeed for your time? Uh, I, you, you've obviously got to have your morning coffee. I'm going to have my Ovaltine now. So uh, uh, thank you very much indeed. Uh, and uh, I would hope that our listeners would uh, would take advantage of, of your ebook. And thank you very much indeed for that. Thank you. Awesome, Chris. It's been a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. 
Wow, so much food for thought there for everyone involved in sales to the agribusiness sector, either at the sharp end or those responsible for running a sales team. So if you want uh, a reminder of the advice given by Sinjin, he is offering a free copy of his book, How to Succeed in Rural Sales to Inside AgriTurf Listeners. Now, a download link is provided in the show notes to this episode, along with links to St. John Craner's LinkedIn page and to his company, Agrarian. Sinjin also mentioned Clayton Christensen from Harvard Business School as one of his influences. So also in the show notes is a link to a short seven-minute YouTube video of Mr. Christensen explaining the concepts of disruptive technology, which is fascinating in its clarity. So plenty to ponder in a terrific episode, and my thanks for staying with it, and to the sponsors of this episode, BAGMA, the British Agricultural and Garden Machinery Association, who have been providing information, support, advice and services to dealerships large and small for over 100 years. And for more information, go to bagma.com. So I'm Chris Biddle. Thank you for joining me. This is Inside AgriTurf, so remember to subscribe on whichever podcast platform you use so that you don't miss a single episode in the future. <music>